I know that not everyone will enjoy this topic. It is rather esoteric, but Brian P. was the first, or one of the first, to get excited about this project, and he requested that I talk about the Renaissance. So, here we go. The Renaissance was a complex and many-sided movement. There were many causes that led to producing it, and the results were varied and far-reaching. It was characterized by a surge of interest in classical scholarship and values. Now here, I should spend a moment reviewing what is meant by classic. The classic period began sometime around 470 BC. It was a time of the flourishing of knowledge, a time when philosophers were seeking for truth about the nature of man and his world. It was the time of Greek scholars like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Socrates developed a style of inquiry into ethical matters and how best to fulfill human potential. Plato, his pupil, took up Socrates' mantle, and in turn, Pluto's pupil, Aristotle, who was a very prolific writer, covered such topics as ethics, political thought, metaphysics, and epistemology. He also wrote treatises on the investigation of the natural world. Roman scholars, influenced by the Greeks, and we're still talking about the classical period, perpetuated the search for truth. Thus, we see men like Cicero, who lived from uh, 106 to 43 BC, Vero, Seneca, Cato, the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, and many others. So those were the writers. That, that was where the literature of the classic period came from. As we shall see, these studies relied on human reasoning and rational thinking, but that method fell by the way during the medieval era to be taken up much later by the Renaissance. The Renaissance, however, also witnessed the discovery and exploration of new continents. They substituted the Copernican theory of astronomy for the Ptolemaic system, which I'll talk about in a minute. The decline of the feudal system and the growth of commerce were influenced by and drove forward the spirit of the Renaissance. It saw the invention of powerful inventions and innovations such as paper, printing, the mariner's compass, and gunpowder. During the Renaissance, a new spirit was at work. It transformed politics and society, science, philosophy, and religion, literature, and art. It began in Italy, then it would spread to Germany, France, and finally England. 
According to an early 20th century historian, William Henry Hudson, the transforming spirit was the spirit of emancipation. The medieval world was held captive by the despotic power of the medieval church. And when we talk about the medieval church, we're referring to the Catholic church and its doctrines. Uh, because during this time period, if you were Christian, which all of Europe was Christian, you were Catholic. So popes and kings were the ruling power of the day. They sought to convince the population that they should do and think only what the church taught. Thus, not independence, but submission was claimed as the first of virtues. Self-repression, not self-realization, was the order of the day. That is, until the new spirit swept through Europe. The Renaissance, then, was rebellion against this intellectual tyranny. Roger Bacon, an English philosopher and Franciscan friar, who lived from 1214 to 1292, taught that the first condition of progress was to set aside authority, such as that of the church, and go straight to nature for answers to age-old questions. Many Renaissance scholars viewed Bacon's teachings as the full fruition of the spirit of the Renaissance in the field of intellectual progress. The Christian Crusades of the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries really paved the way for the rise of that new spirit. They opened up the East to Western trade. They encouraged navigation, extended the area of peaceful relationships with other peoples, and created new needs and introduced new commodities. They gave an enormous energy to commerce and the commercial spirit. Because so many nobles were marching in these crusades and dying in the progress or the process, it helped to bring about the end of feudalism. This was the age of men like Roger Bacon, Albertus Magnus, and Raymond Lully, the age of Thomas Aquinas and Dante. During this period, we can see the founding of universities at Oxford, Cambridge, Siena, Naples, and Lisbon. But those early efforts proved abortive and a reaction against this, what um, Hudson has called the springtime of Renaissance, move things back toward medievalism. So even the universities, which at first were the centers of mental activity, soon became strongholds of scholasticism. Scholasticism uh, was a reactive and dogmatic return to the status quo. So these Universities, which had seemed so um, full of potential, 
developed a conservative tradition. They became proponents of obstinate adherence to old modes and methods of thought. It was in the free towns and cities of Italy that civil and intellectual liberty developed and flourished. In them, the individual citizen had the best prospect for self-realization and self-assertion. Whatever the token form of government, these populist centers were markedly democratic. This democratic spirit was largely the result of the enormous expansion of industry and trade. The upper classes of the Italian cities were distinctly different than the upper classes in the feudal domains of Europe. The lords of the feudal fortresses knew nothing of domestic refinement or even of comfort. While they lived in cold and gloomy castles with straw on the floors and rough wooden tables and benches, which were often shared with their animals, the Italian gentry were enjoying a home life of decency and grace. Wealth brought leisure manners, and a taste for luxury. Trade with the East brought those luxuries to the Italian cities. And that trade was uh, the spice trade. Before we turn to the intellectual progress of the Renaissance, I want to spend a little time talking about the significant inventions and discoveries which did much to create and carry the spirit and atmosphere of the new age. A taste for travel had been aroused by the Crusades as returning crusaders brought back to Europe fascinating tales of foreign places and people as well as exotic commodities like silks and spices, um, all those exotic goods. Advancements in astronomy, accepting Copernicus's theory of the motion and placement of sun, moons, and planets brought a reconstruction of the universe. So, with a taste for foreign items and new information about the stars, Navigational knowledge advanced to the point that ocean travel became a reality. Voyages, voyages of discovery, which began in the 1300s with the Portuguese sailing south along the coast of Africa, led to the world-changing voyages of Columbus, Amerigo Vespucci, Vasco da Gama, and Magellan. These ventures of these four men added to man's fast-growing knowledge of the world, which before had been hidden to them. The knowledge thus acquired helped change the currents of history and to shape the foundation of medieval thought. The truth about the world revealed by the great explorers challenged the dogmatic authority of the church 
medieval doctrine about the shape of the earth had varied between the idea that it was flat or concave, or there were a few accepted that it was spherical. But most believed, as the church taught, that it was inhabited on only one side. There was no bottom, no other side of the world. The direct effect of geographical discovery upon thought was extremely important. But even more so was the indirect effect. As men began to realize how enormous the world was when they had previously viewed it as so much smaller, their interest expanded and there was an increase in the general consciousness of the world around them. Maritime exploration revealed a new earth. The old astronomy, called the Ptolemaic system, taught that the earth was the fixed center of the universe. A perfectly round globe which revolved from east to west in concentric circles and that the sun and the other planets revolved around the earth. The earth was the most important. The earth was the center. Rather than leaving these theories in the realm of science, the church had made the mistake of making them into church doctrine. Therefore, any deviation from this view was labeled heresy. Nicholas Copernicus, who lived from 1473 to 1543, challenged this belief. His revolutionary conclusions, based on his careful study, put the sun in the center of the universe, and Earth took its humble place among its companion planets in its yearly journeys around the sun. Now, Copernicus avoided conf conflict with the church by refusing to have his theories published until after his death. His successor, however, Galileo, who proved Copernicus's theory by his original investigation, was not so fortunate. He was brought up on charges of propagating dangerous doctrines and was forced to recant or die. And Galileo did recant. However, he continued to write. It is easy to understand why the new astronomy greatly increased the disturbance of mind which geographical discovery had confirmed. Men had been surprised by the revelation of their ignorance in respect of the world in which they lived. The entire reversal of all their pre preconceived notions concerning the central importance of this world in the general scheme of things was followed by an even sharper intellectual shock. The steady advance of science in this as in every other area of the Renaissance inevitably 
tended to bring discredit upon the church. The general spread of the anti-dogmatic spirit accelerated. Leadership in thought passed from the priest to the layman, and the individual searcher standing before the mysteries of the universe claimed for himself the right to set aside tradition and to follow truth wherever it led. Inventions as well as discoveries helped in the wind-up of the medieval order and the rise of the new modes of life and thought. In the navigational advancements, there was the mariner's compass and the astrolabe. In aid of warfare, there was the invention of gunpowder. But the most significant invention for the Renaissance was the printing press. Thomas Carlyle in 1833 said, he, he who first shortened the labor of copyist by device of movable, movable type was disbanding hired armies and cashiering most kings and senates and creating a whole new democratic world. He had invented the art of printing. Before the invention of movable type, all books and other written materials were created by copyists or scribes who wrote with quill pen and ink upon parchment, which was made of treated animal skins and which took a lot of skill and a lot of time to create these sheets of parchment. But these scribes worked tirelessly on hand copying original texts. In fact, most manuscripts were works of art with elaborate motifs and intricate decorations. So there were few books available and only the very wealthy and the church could afford them. But the invention of the printing press in 1450 accelerated the spread of Renaissance culture. It made information available to a greater percentage of the population. Printing also facilitated the dissemination and preservation of knowledge in standardized form. So that different people could read the same text with no um, differences. This was most important in the advance of science, technology, and scholarship. The printing press certainly initiated an information revolution on par with the internet today. Printing could and did spread new ideas quickly and with greater impact. So, for all of the previously mentioned reasons, the barrier of ignorance and misunderstanding which theology had created began to be dismantled, and the emancipation of intellectual er inquiry began. This is often referred to as the revival of learning. The revival 
of learning had a twofold significance. The study of classical literature began in earnest and classical thought was liberated from ecclesiastical constraints because medieval theologians and scholastic philosophers had taken the literature of the ancient Greeks and Romans and changed it to almost unrecognizable form. Medieval theologians and scholastic philosophers were replaced by men who believed in the human potential and who sought to use reason to better understand the world around them. Although classical literature had never completely disappeared, it was available to a scant few. The works of Greeks, like Plato, Aristotle, or Homer, were practically forgotten. As most original manuscripts had been taken by the Ottoman Empire when it had defeated the Byzantine Empire, those texts have then been translated into Arabic. But the thing was, the spirit of classical antiquity had been lost more completely than its literature. The powerful medieval spirit was adamantly opposed to that of classic times. The thoughts and opinions of classical antiquity were changed through ecclesiastical handling out of all resemblance to historical reality. So a barrier of ignorance and misunderstanding had been reared by church doctrine between the mind of the medieval man and that of the classic ages. But now, with the revival of learning, classical thought was liberated. Ancient texts could now be read and studied for their insights and wisdom, rather than through the lens of church dogma. Men who became who came to be called humanists brought both the highest achievements of genius and the finest instruments of education. Petrarch, who lived from 1304 to 1374, was an Italian poet and scholar. He is considered the father of humanism. He was known in his own time for his enthusiasm for classical authors and his Latin writings. He was crowned Poet Laureate in Rome in 1341 for his Latin epic titled Africa and his biographies of famous men of antiquity. Petrarch believed that secular achievements did not necessarily prevent an authentic relationship with God. So although he was dismayed at the barrier that theology had built up, yet he believed that it was um, possible and he himself remained a believer. Um, he believed that God had given humans their vast 
intellectual and creative potential to be used to their fullest. Petrarch also believed in the moral and practical value of the study of ancient history and literature, that is, the study of human thought and action. He traveled throughout Italy, France, Germany, Flanders, all with the principal aim of recovering ancient manuscripts. Everywhere he went, he looked for copies or original texts of the classical literature. By his letters and dissertations, he spread the love of classical learning. So, what do we mean by humanism? It was an intellectual movement to counteract the scholastic focus on education for the purpose of job preparation and for men only. Humanists sought to create a citizenry who were able to speak and write with eloquence and to engage in the civic life of their community. They championed the study of what today is called the humanities, that is, grammar, rhetoric, history, poetry, and moral philosophy. Rhetoric, of course, is the um, art of persuasive speaking. Humanism was about the exploration of human potential. It was, it was an optimistic philosophy that saw man as a rational and perceptive being with the ability to decide and to think for himself. Humanism had several features. First, it took human nature in all of its various manifestations and achievements as its subject. Second, it stressed the unity and compatibility of the truth found in all schools of thought, a doctrine known as syncretism. Third, it emphasized the dignity of man. Finally, humanism looked forward to a rebirth of a lost human spirit and wisdom. Humanists assisted in the development of a new body of knowledge. The effect of humanism was to help men break free from the mental strictures imposed by religious orthodoxy and to inspire free inquiry and criticism and to inspire a new confidence in the possibilities of human thought and creation. From Italy, the humanist spirit and the Renaissance it produced spread north to all parts of Europe, aided by the invention of printing. The most noted northern humanist was Desiderius Erasmus. Now, Erasmus was a Dutch humanist and the greatest scholar of the Northern Renaissance. He had originally trained as a Catholic priest, but became disenchanted with the professional study of theology and its addiction to opposition of all things new and different. To aid in his gathering of information, he traveled in Europe, most significantly to Italy, and from there to England, 
where he wrote his most famous work, Praise of Folly, published in 1511. And he wrote many educational treatises. He also wrote a preliminary version of his manual on letter writing, published in 1522, and his version of On Abundance and Style, published in 1512. Throughout his life, he wrote copious letters and a plethora of other significant works. Okay, we could continue explaining the important men and their contributions to the revival of learning, but the Renaissance was significant also in the area of science, which I will mention only briefly. The long domination of theology had meant the almost complete arrest of science as all learning was forced into the service of the church. The study of nature was permitted only on condition that should anything be discovered which would conflict with church creed, it should be repressed as evil imaginings. That spirit bred by theology was hostile to science. With the enormous development of superstition and the universal belief in marvels and miracles, a supernatural explanation of any phenomenon was always more acceptable than a natural one. People would much rather hear that a dilemma was caused by an evil spirit than to hear that a drought caused crop failure. Physicians fell into disrepute among rigidly orthodox theologians and were often regarded as atheists by the common people because those physicians tried to effect cures by physical means instead of the supernatural. When Giovanni Minardi argued that in attacking a disease, the doctor should attend more to the beating of the pulse than to the aspects and conjunctions of the stars, he was held to have said something dangerously radical. From the age of the church fathers onward, the idea had steadily gained ground that scientific knowledge is dangerous and that the pursuit of it imperils the soul. Those men who devoted themselves to scientific interests and succeeded in them soon gained a sinister reputation as magicians and as dabblers in the black arts. Works in the realm of science owed a great deal to the mathematicians of the period, and we're talking about during the Renaissance, uh, mathematicians such as uh, Jacopo Zabarella and Pythagoras. Zabarella analyzed and formulated the rules of deductive and inductive methods by which scientists worked. Pythagoras conveyed a vision of a harmonious geometric universe that helped form the mind of men like Copernicus. Humanists included arithmetic and geometry in the liberal arts curriculum, 
Renaissance scholars made a great contribution to mathematics by translating and publishing in 1544 some previously unknown works of the ancient in the field of mathematics. In philosophy, scholasticism had been the rule of the day. It was the system of theology and philosophy taught in medieval European universities based on Aristotelian logic and the writings of the early church fathers and having a strong emphasis on tradition and dogma. The great problem of scholasticism was the complete reduction of theological dogma to systematic logical form. Its aim was not the independent quest for truth, for no such independent quest was permitted, but rather the aim was to simply restate in rational terms truths already given by the church. The unchallenged premise of all scholastic thinking was the absolute truth of church dogma. The only avenue open for scholars was to find corroborating evidence. The decay of scholasticism was brought about by the changing spirit of the new age, but the great enemy of scholasticism was the development of natural science, which brought the mind of man back to nature and reality with a scientific method of inquiry. Renaissance scholars were prolific in educational theories and experiments. Humanist education was based almost exclusively on the Greek and Latin classics. They emphasized a study of form and style. Education was conceived as a preparation for living and as a social need. There was particular emphasis, of course, on literature. As one scholar said to his nephew, without literature, I do not know what you can be but a two-legged donkey. No one, neither nobleman nor king nor general, is of any worth if he be ignorant of literature. Of course, what was meant by literature was the Greek and Latin from ancient times, from the classical period. The one great instrument for the building of character, no less than for the training of taste, was to study the literature of those ancients. There was a school in Mantua, Italy, um, a humanist school, and the object of that school was to make education a process of pleasure to the learners, to develop the entire nature, physical as as well as intellectual and moral, to bring out all the qualities of character in such a way that scholars might be fully equipped to play their part privately as good men and publicly as good citizens. Music and the rudiments of what we would call the natural sciences 
also, of course, had a place in the humanist school. Prominence was likewise given to games and physical exercise. The purpose, the overall purpose, was to develop a fully rounded, harmoniously developed character. Many, if not most humanists, thought of scholarship as something to be cultivated for its own sake. Now, I know that most people who think about the Renaissance think of the great works of art and architecture. Before podcast with no videos or images, I didn't feel I could do that part of the Renaissance justice. But you can be sure, however, that sculpture, painting, architecture, music, all reveal that knowledge of human potential to focus on nature and the freedom to create were obvious. Many scholars of the Renaissance follow this spirit of emancipation into the period known as the Protestant Reformation. Some even conceive that the Enlightenment of uh, the 1700s is a continuation of that spirit. I tend to agree with that concept. Therefore, as you've probably noticed, I have put no dates on the beginning nor the end of the Renaissance. In studying history, nothing happens in a vacuum. One thing leads to another, and that to another, and so on. It is only for the convenience of the teacher and the student that we put time parameters around specific topics. And we could spend much more time uh, talking about the Renaissance, the different individuals who contributed uh, significant things. Uh, but I hope that I've clarified that the Renaissance was a many-sided and complex movement with numerous causes and consequences. It was the emancipation of thought. It liberated human potential and freed the individual to perceive the reality of the world around them. Thank you for listening. If you have comments, I would love for you to let me know. You could email email me at c-a-t-e-r-r-y at lonestar.edu or c-a-t-r-y at suddenlink.net or post a message on Facebook. Watch for the next podcast, which will be on the United States and War with the Barbary Pirates. Tune in to join me in learning from history. I invite you also to catch the lessons on American history I've been taping for my channel on YouTube. That channel is called History Bites. Lord Acton, uh, a historian of the late 1800s, um, often referred to as the magistrate of history, said history is not a burden on the memory but an illumination of the soul. Keep learning, everybody. I'll see you next time.